It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Hey, guess what, guys? Special bonus treat for all of you podcast listeners. Maybe you've already heard about it. Uh, my company, Maximum Fun, just put out our first ever scripted series. It's called Bubble. Very, very proud of it. Uh, Bubble is a sci-fi comedy series set in a city called Fairhaven, which is a lot like, I don't know, Portland. Pick your Portland. Portland, Oregon. Portland, Maine. Except for a few big differences. For one, Fairhaven is somewhere else, not on this earth. And two, the town is literally surrounded by a bubble, covered in a protective bubble. Our show follows four 20-somethings working the same side hustle to make ends meet. They're contract workers using an app called Hunter. The app hires people to kill the monsters that occasionally slip through the town's protective barrier. Bubbles part ass-kicking comedy, part commentary on how far people will go to live in a hip, expensive city. Sort of like Broad City meets Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I was an executive producer on the show, probably the most ambitious thing we've ever done at Max Fun. One of my favorite things about making the show was that I got to work on it with some really amazing people. For one thing, there's the cast, uh, Mike Mitchell, Allison Becker, Eliza Skinner, Keith Powell, Cristela Alonso, plus like a laundry list of guest stars that you wouldn't believe. Uh, Judy Greer is the least of it. And also the show's creators, two of my closest, oldest friends, Nick Adams, He's a writer-producer on BoJack Horseman, and he's written on many other shows. And my friend and Jordan Jesse Go co-host Jordan Morris, who created Bubble. He's also a seasoned comedy writer. Uh, he's worked on At Midnight, among many other things. And that's who you are about to hear from. I talked with Nick and Jordan about creating the show, about living in a big city and making ends meet, about how living in places like L.A. or New York can kind of consume your identity Lots of good stuff here anyway. Before we get into it, here's a little bit from the show's pilot. This kind of explains the premise. It's an advertisement for that Hunter app I was talking about. And the voice that you're about to hear is one of the many great guest stars on Bubble, the great Jenny Jardin from Boing Boing. You'll also hear a little bit of Martin Starr and maybe some Judy Greer. Hunter, an evolution in safety. Because you've chosen to live in one of Tandem's deliberate communities, safety is one of your utmost concerns. The dome around your city effectively keeps out 99% of this planet's wildlife, colloquially known as imps, whether they be insectoid, reptilian, or other in nature. For that rare 1% that may penetrate our borders, there's Hunter, an elite killing force of imp slayers made up of people just like you. Let's hear from some. I love my graphic design job, but on the weekends, I use Hunter to protect my community from terrors from beyond the walls. And I make a little extra cash while I'm at it. Take it from me, a millennial mom. There's nothing like opening Hunter after I put the kids to bed. The excitement and pride I feel after taking down a pack of imps is unparalleled. And with weekly bonuses and in-app tipping, it's not a bad side hustle either. Hunter, an evolution in safety. Sign up for the beta today. Jordan Morris, Nick Adams, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you guys on the show. Good to be here. Thank hey. you. I guess Fair back on been. the show in your case, Jordan, mm -hmm. well, it's been quite a while since your signature comedy segment, Jordan Ranks America, ran on this program. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Oh, I think uh, you actually mispronounced unpopular. Oh, unpopular <laughs> segment. You said... It's hard, though. It's one of those words that sometimes you've only seen it written. I once <laughs> got a note from Public Radio International that said, listeners will wonder... Is this show comedy? 
<laughs> Sorry, everyone. So, Jordan, you're the creator of Bubble. Where did this idea come from? Um, yeah, I kind of just saw, you know, the struggles of people around me and kind of the, like, the small hell that everybody endures to, like, live in a cool city. Like, uh, you know, I was... I really distinctly remember talking to a friend who lived in Brooklyn and, you know, she had an adult job but still lived in a walk-in closet with four roommates around her. Like an actual literal walk-in closet? An actual literal walk-in closet. The roommates did not live in the walk-in closet. They lived in some of the apartment's other bedrooms. Yeah. Um, and presumably living room. Yeah. And and they lived above a, a nightclub, a literal nightclub that, you know, because of New York hours was nightclubbing till four in the morning. And I asked if it if it was like that every night, if they, that like thump of the nightclub was every night. And she just says, no, 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 not, not every night, just Wednesday through Sunday. <laughs> and like this area that they were in was so cool. I mean, just bookstores, coffee, bars, uh, uh, cyclists would ride by a lot in big groups. They were probably doing something fun. Um, but just that, like the stuff you go through is, is really intense. And it's absolutely, you know, there are similar hells living in L.A. There's the, you know, the traffic and having to, like, listen to actors talk to each other while you're in line at Starbucks and uh, stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, just but, you know, the the pleasures are amazing. So it's it's I don't know. It just kind of was about the kind of the stuff we endure to live somewhere cool. And I just kind of thought it'd be fun to take it to a sci fi extreme and add monsters and robots and an evil corporation and uh, mutant powers and all that other good sci-fi stuff. Part of that, I think, is like actual fear. I mean, in the real world, there is like actual fear is deeply tied into that. Like you have you can have a distinctly bourgeois hipster lifestyle. You can have all the four dollar single source coffees you want, but you constantly have the terror in the back of your mind like there is no way to live within my means in this context like there's no safe way economically to live in San Francisco in 2018 or in Brooklyn in 2018 yeah i mean and definitely like you know most of the people i interact with and myself included like we are not rich people we are people who are kind of sort of just eking up on middle class and we can make it work if we you know don't save any money <laughs> don't save any money and never own anything and you know have roommates in our walk-in closets and we can enjoy all the you know all the delicious coffees and music scenes and improv shows we want but yeah it's it's a uh, it's it's its own weird little kind of struggle nick do you have a relationship to that world how do you feel about it you're 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 a little bit more of an adult grown-up yeah, I mean, I think the thing about a city, you know, with the thing that, you know, Jordan was talking about earlier, the thing that draws you to a city or, you know, someplace like Brooklyn or someplace like L.A., everybody's doing a version of it. So, you know, you're just, I'm doing a married with two kids version of that. But, you know, you live in a, you pay to live in a good neighborhood, but then the schools aren't good. And so then you ask, why am I paying to live in this neighborhood? You know, because of the culture. What is the culture you're giving me from the school? You know, so you do that same struggle. It just it's just like you get a slightly matured version of it. But you wake up every morning thinking like, oh, maybe Austin would be better. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think everyone who lives somewhere other than Austin occasionally thinks yeah. maybe Austin <laughs> would be better. 
Yeah. Austin's like, stay away. Yeah, stay wonder, away from I, Austin. Hey, if you're out there and you live in Austin, where do you think might be better? <laughs> uh, Charlotte, maybe? Charlotte, maybe? Yeah. I heard nice things about Charlotte. I heard nice mm-hmm. things about the research triangle. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, you're, well, you're, you're off if you're doing research triangle. That's I heard Raleigh, you, Durham, Chapel Hill. I heard you can live in a mansion in Gary, Indiana and take the train into Chicago. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What was your relationship to that kind of place when you were a teenager or in college? I mean, Jordan, you and I went to college together. You're originally from Orange County. Um, so you were, whatever, 30 miles, 25 miles from downtown Los Angeles. Uh, what was your relationship to that world? Was it something that felt close or far away? So, uh, uh, yeah, I grew up in Orange County, which is maybe an hour south of L.A., and it... Um you know, and it is expensive and hard to live in in its own way. Um, lots of parking. Just, I mean, if you love to park, <laughs> yeah. If you, the premium you pay to mm. Orange County, the premium you pay to live in Orange County is absolutely worth it if you love to park. And the bonus is it makes it hotter. That's true, yeah. The extra blacktop makes it hotter. It's, yeah, it's yeah. It's like a bonus. So it's a lot of heat and a lot of parking. <laughs> I remember being completely stunned, like gobsmacked, mm-hmm. when you and I, Jordan, were 22 and a friend from our improv group who'd grown up in Calabasas, California, mm-hmm. uh, drove us to a show in her car. She had a nicer car than anyone else did. And we got there, and she just pulled up and put her blinkers on and said, Jesse, can you park the car? I don't know how to parallel park. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's something you can you know grow up in Orange County without knowing how to do. Um, and yeah, and we as a family didn't, we uh, would occasionally come up to Los Angeles. You know, we'd drive that hour north to like go to the La Brea Tar Pits once a year was and still am a huge fan of the La Brea Tar Pits. They've got a sloth skeleton. Ah, you should see this sloth skeleton. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's my opinion of the La Brea Tar Pits, Jordan. Well, I mean, I'm, I don't think I'll ever convince you. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I have it holds a special place in my heart, and I like how the carpet clearly hasn't been changed since 1978. <laughs> All the way to L.A. just for the Tar Pits. Yeah, definitely. I was a big, I was a big uh, dinosaur and ancient mammal fan as a kid, um, so I think that was like that was like a birthday treat for me. Um, but yeah, the kind of the world of cool city stuff was not something I grew up with, um, and just kind of got a little taste of it when I was like in high school and could borrow my mom's mini minivan and I could you know drive, you know probably too many people up to you know see a comedy show or to see a band or something like that and then i i got the first look of like oh man like there's a cool place to live it's hard to park but boy is there stuff oh look at this stuff that's not a cheesecake factory guys shut up i'm trying to park yeah i know a lot of that let it be quiet i need to concentrate (laughs) yeah and nick you're from a lot further away you're from, what, North Carolina, yeah, right? Yeah, from a small town in North Carolina, yeah. So what did you think about metropolitan big city life when you were a teenager or whatever? One of my earliest memories of my childhood, it, it is probably one of the things that everyone in my family knew about me from when I was really, really little. I Like, I, like I remember watching, like, Sesame Street and anything that was urban and just loving it and wanting to be in a city. And, like, people would say, like, oh, Nick's going to graduate and leave and he's never coming back. Like, I just... All of that, and all of the the funny thing is, all of the bad stuff about it kind of draws you in too. Like when you're a kid, you know, you watch a movie about New York, and people are yelling at each other, and it's crowded, and the guy's apartment is too small, mm-hmm. and then you know, and you're like, I want all of that stuff, you know. Um, 
good, bad, and otherwise, and you you know, like at least for me, I was in college thinking like, yeah, I'm going to finish this, and then I'm going to go to a city. I didn't know which one, um, and I ended up in Washington, D.C. I spent a fair amount of time in New York, but just being around all that stuff that you realize, I'm going to sacrifice my living situation might not be great. I don't have health care. You know what I mean? Everything is sort of catch as catch can. And I'm doing all that because of this almost mythological allure of Hollywood or Chicago or Brooklyn or, you know, Austin or Seattle or whatever it is to you or Fairhaven where you're just like, yeah, every now and then like a crazy bush animal attacks somebody. But it's not too bad. You get used to it. You get used to it. Yeah. You know. Just Wednesday through Sunday. Yeah, just, just Wednesday, Wednesday through yeah. Sunday. Okay. I definitely, uh, my opinion of New York as a kid all came from David Letterman. Because David Letterman, you know, and I, I am of the age that I was like a Letterman nerd. And he had hyper-local humor on that show. Yeah, I'm realizing yeah. now, like, you know, st- there was, I, like, I guess I kind of knew who Ed Koch was just because Letterman did yeah. so much Ed Koch material. And, um, and even yeah. Even Seinfeld, like, you kind of learned about New York if you watched that show. Like, totally. just talked about it geographically. Um, and yeah, and I remember all of the rat jokes about New York, all of the, you know, jokes about the, you know. How giant the rats how were. How giant the rats were. And I remember, like, moving to L.A., and seeing my first rat in my first bad apartment and thinking like, yeah, I've made it. I've, I've, I've made doing it. it. I'm here. It's gritty. I anyway. think to some extent, though, the characters in Bubble who are in their late 20s mm-hmm. are just on the cusp of realizing, oh, no, my noble suffering is becoming – is like I'm about to enter middle age. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just – I can just see middle age over that crest – and I'm not there. Like, there's no. What is noble suffering when you're 26 years old? When you're 32 years old, curdles real hard and fast. Approaching 30 is like driving into Los Angeles. If you drive into LA, like, because there's so many suburbs, you're coming from the desert, so you're coming from nothing, and you come around a bend and you see what looks like a city and mall and car dealerships, and you think that must be LA, and it's not. It's El Monte. <laughs> and you're going to do that four more times before you actually get to L.A. Like, that's what approaching your 30s is like. You're like, is this the year that I'm going to have that nice place and a nice car and I'm going to have a dark suit for when my uncle dies and I don't have to cobble together some outfit, you know? <laughs> and it's not. It's not. No. <laughs> you think 29. 29 is the year that I get it all. Nope, nope. Is it going to be 30? 30, I'm going to get. Nope, it's not 30. You know, it's just the... You think life is going to be this thing where I'm stable now and all the check marks have been ticked and I have it and it doesn't happen that way. And you look around and you're like, well, my one of my friends has a decent job, but his place is not great. And this guy doesn't have a job and his place is amazing. You know, everyone's figuring out different levels of it no one figures it out all at once yeah like i know i know a guy who lives in a pantry but he drives a lexus <laughs> how somehow yeah his credit can't be good he lives in a tent in the backyard but he has a vacation home you know it's so it, it is it's, it is crazy like how you know, right it's like people kind of cobbling together how they want to live and it's like it's never exactly perfect but you you know you compromise i remember very vividly my first apartment in los angeles the like apartment manager, like the guy who called the plumber, um, drove a late model Mercedes sedan, mm-hmm. like a giant black Mercedes, a newish mm-hmm. Mercedes. And he was in like maybe in his late 20s, like he was a young guy. And I was just like, 
what is going on that this guy I, mm. I kind of lived in a I mean my street had a lot of MS-13 graffiti mm. and I remember thinking like what's the story with this Mercedes that he's driving and that it feels like also like a particularly Los Angeles thing your that, car is super important almost yeah. more important than your place yeah, yeah it's very strange like that guy probably it, like there's a trust the trust purchased the car. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't pay for the car. The he's, trust yeah, pays for the car. Yeah, technically leasing it from his <laughs> grandpa or something. Yeah, but don't talk to him about it, because that's the whole thing. If we're talking sketchy landlords, I remember one of my first apartments out here was, uh, and it was the first time I was living alone, so I was feeling like a real big shot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a, it was like, it's that compromise thing you talked about. Like, I was living alone, no roommates. It was a fucking weird dump, and I think one of the, uh, other apartments in the complex was somewhere that people went to come down from heroin <laughs> because there were mattresses all over the floor. Um, but yeah, it was my compromise. It was my like, yeah, I'm going to live by myself. Yeah. I want to have my own place, and I will stay in this, you know, weird, maybe flop house. I don't, I may, who, but who knows? None mm-hmm. of my business. And I remember once the toy, uh, the, excuse me, the bathtub uh, was belching a brown slime. Uh huh. I don't want to. Say, you know, I don't want to presume why it was brown, but I'm right. guessing it was probably feces. Mm-hmm. So this, my bathtub is belching a brown slime. At, at, you hope it's feces, right? Ideally. Like you want your toilet yeah. to just, you don't want there to be anything else brown. God, if it's not. Yeah, if it wasn't feces, geez. I, what? It's, yeah, I have some sort of Ghostbusters 2 situation on my hand. Um, and I called my sketchy landlord about it. And, um and, you know, I would maybe describe his vibe as too many Grateful Dead concerts. Uh-huh. Um, or fish, maybe. Maybe he's the fish. Hard to say. Hard to say how old this guy was. Could have been Spaghetti Incident. Might have been the Spaghetti Incident. Who am I to say? Uh, and I called him up, and the maintenance man for the apartment was his dad. His dad came over and did all the handyman stuff. So I called, and I said, hey, my bathtub is belching a brown slime. Can your dad come over and take a look at it? And he's like, oh, yeah, my uh, dad's actually gone for the weekend. He had a fishing opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) A a fishing opportunity. Got to take it. It's got to take it. I mean, when, you know. That also doesn't doesn't qualify how good of an opportunity. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Love that it's like any chance he gets to go fishing. Sure, yeah. You, know, you don't know what he's talking about. He loves the cast. He loves the reel. Our first apartment in L.A., the super of the apartment, ended up uh, having to go away to one of our state's finer correctional institutions because he attacked a cleaning woman with a knife. Oh, dear. So, so there you go. Let's hear another clip from Bubble, uh, the new podcast executive produced by my guests, Nick Adams and Jordan Morris, and by me. Uh, So Mitch Murray is one of the main characters in the show. This is the scene that introduces him. Um, He is, uh, the narrator tells us, the kind of guy who tucks his shirt in three times a year. And he's at a bar in this scene and introduces himself to a woman who's played by Taylor Orsi. I just want whatever I'm doing to make people's lives better, whether it's in the app space or the poetry space or some other space that we haven't even thought of yet, like robot maids. Oh, the bartender's coming. Uh, Let me grab you something. Hey, uh, you the Postmates guy? Great, here's the order. Oh, make sure those assholes see that we included the extra Parmesan this time. I don't need them calling here. Driving food around for Postmates, huh? Technically in the app space. You got me there. Hey, after I drop this off, I can come back and buy you a drink. Mm, please don't. Okay. 
I had the experience of having a guy I knew from college but had not seen mm-hmm. since college uh, deliver uh, delivery food to my house. I was very excited about the boom in the food delivery app economy because there were no restaurants that delivered to my mm-hmm. house previously. And um, it was as difficult a social interaction as I have ever had in my life. Great guy. He was just finishing up his MFT. Uh, I I have bare, bore no, no ill will towards him or his position. It was just odd to... There's something about the 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 casualness that is part of the appeal of those app economy jobs. The fact that you can just do it uh, is part of what makes it so weird to get to get surprised by it. I think mm-hmm. like that it is that it just breezes through your life. You don't expect someone breezing through your life that way to be a person that you know. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, it is. It's just kind of like becoming part of life. Like I worked on a TV show for a couple of years, and uh, you know, and and it ended, and then I saw one of the like one of the post production supervisors out and about, and I asked what he had been doing, and he said, "Oh, you know, uh, I've just started job X, but for a while I was just driving Lyft, and and I think it, yeah, and I think it that is just something that people will start doing, you know, in that time between things." Um, yeah, which is very strange, and it's um, yeah. I also, I also just think that in the younger generation, maybe it's a, a result of the gig economy, or the gig economy is a result of this. I think there is less of a stigma on the side hustle. You know, I think there used to be a like you got to get a job. You take that energy and you put it into you polish up your resume and you take a class and you get back out there and you get a job. And I think. Because the economy is so wrecked, I think a lot of young people are just like, no, you don't sit down and sit, you know, wait for another job. You just try to start something on the side, or you know, you start an Etsy shop, or you drive Lyft, or whatever. And those things can add up, as opposed to you know, I think someone from my generation might be more like, I gotta get some resumes out there and make some calls, you know. But they're both motivated by fear. I mean, that's the thing that in bubble is the driving force that you have made the fear of living in the app economy uh, or living in the gig economy corporeal in the form of like monsters that attack you. Sure. Yeah. No. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that some people are fine with that idea of like, if I'm driving Lyft and I, you know, pick up somebody that I used to date or I pick up that somebody I used to work with, that will be weird. But I think that, they, yeah, there are a lot of people who are just like, that is a that is a reality of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And, and, you know, and I think there's a certain amount of like n- not wanting to fall below the social station that you are at. Like if you get to a certain place, having to go back, you know, a step or what you conceive to be a step is like really, really terrifying. So I think that like, you know, you will risk that embarrassment or you know inconvenience or the you know pain in the butt that it is to you know be driving Thai food around at midnight um yeah I mean it's a it's it's a it's a risk and I think that like yeah some people are cool with doing that rather than you know having to move into a more modest apartment or having to move into a less cool city so yeah it's just uh yeah it's just that that compromise again Jordan I am not your therapist but I am your old friend mm-hmm. And I do think that that, from my outsider's perspective, Mm -hmm. I feel like that economic insecurity is personally for you a particular 
fear. Is that yeah. true? Oh, sure, totally. Um, yeah, and it, and it's strange, and I think as people, you know, if, when people know that you like grew up in California, there's a certain like stigma is that like okay, California is an expensive place, and um, you know you're probably well off. You probably have a trust fund. You could probably you know your parents probably have a nice house that you could live in for a couple of months. Um, you know, if things go wrong. But my, you know, family when I was a kid kind of went from upper middle class to teetering between lower and middle class when my dad lost a job and kind of uh, bailed. So I think that we, you know, we were definitely in danger of like having to change our lives. And I think that like in lieu of changing our lives, everybody just started to hustle a little bit more. Um, in theory, I don't think doing the life change and taking a step back is a bad thing, but it still feels, you know, it still feels like, like it would feel like a defeat to me. So yeah, I think I do kind of wrestle with that. And like when, you know, obviously in showbiz, you're between things all the time. Uh, and that's maybe why I'm not super cut out for showbiz because that terrifies me. Um, so yeah. Also, I think like you, you move to a city at a certain point, you internalize that struggle and you're like, no, I'm going to win you know like i'm gonna win the city's not gonna beat me brooklyn's not gonna get the best of me i'm not gonna be the idiot that moves to long island or moves to queens or whatever i'm gonna stay in brooklyn you know and there have been multiple times where i thought about like moving to a suburb of la and i take great pride in the fact that i live in los angeles not in a suburb of los angeles i live here despite all of the things and like that you know like it feels very much like the people in fairhaven have planted that flag like yeah yeah you losers can't handle the imps because we can handle it because we've right. chosen to stay in Fairhaven, you know. Yeah, and there's that kind of there's that kind of tood where you are even like romanticizing the crummy parts of <laughs> right. living in your big city. Yeah. It's right, it's like being impressed at the rats that Letterman was talking about. It's it, like It's like when New Yorkers go to Chicago and go, "Oh, it's too clean." That's not a diss. <laughs> You're right. not dissing Chicago. You're dissing New York. Like Yeah. Yeah, so that's definitely a strange byproduct of this phenomenon is like almost wanting something to be bad or like scoffing at something that is, you know, convenient. Anyway, I had the experience once of giving a talk about like sort of about creative entrepreneurship in Canada. And this woman raised her hand at the end of my talk and she said, you said that for five years or 10 years you made $15,000 a year. What about those of us who don't have trust funds? Hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, did you? No, I, I'm i quite certain I will have to be supporting my parents very soon. Uh, I haven't gotten a, you know, my parents, to their credit, each gave me $300 a month when I was in college. Hmm. But, like, besides that, and um, I, I realized, like, how important to my identity it was that... I, what a horrible skill it is or a tragic skill to like feel confident that you can live on $14,000 a year (laughs) um, in an expensive major city. Uh, But like the, the, uh, the presumption is always that you're doing it because you have some incredible in there. I guess there are people like that, but um, 
it, I was I was just gobsmacked, and my wife was like, "You have to remember, you're a white guy in a necktie talking about business." And I was like, "Oh right, <laughs> yeah, sure. I guess people that's true." <laughs> yeah, and I think that's something that kind of comes up a lot in bubble is people being presented with an alternative to the bubble that they're in, like. And, you know, depending on how bad a day I've had, like, I consider a ton of alternatives to the L.A. grind. Like, sometimes I'm like, you know, maybe I will find a nice suburb with tons of parking and where the place to hang out is a TGI Fridays. I like TGI Fridays. It's really good. And maybe I'll meet somebody at the bar and, you know, we'll start a life, you know. And, like, it sounds – there is a time when that sounds so appealing. And, you know, there's a there's a storyline in Bubble about people considering going off the grid. I mean, that's really expensive. But, you know, I think when, you know, if you ever take a road trip through, you know, a less populated area and you just kind of see the, you know, tiny homes dotted all over the place, you know, you think like, God, what would that be? I would I would read. I would sit and I would read and I would maybe learn to paint. I like I probably won't learn to paint. No, but you like right. paint. you'll buy the easel. Yeah. You set it up. It's like when, when things get really hard, I don't know if everybody does this, but I certainly do. When things get hard, you kind of like slip into this alternate fantasy life a little bit where you're considering these other alternatives to your yeah. one that is maybe not working out at the moment. So, yeah, I think that's that's something that kind of recurs in Bubble is people like when the monsters get a little too vicious, wondering what else they could do. I think you also reach a point in your life where – you start to feel the pressures of responsibility in adulthood, whether, you know, Nick, you're a parent, you know, you, uh, you know, your wife, I remember when your wife was in graduate school, it's like, oh, if my wife's in graduate school, we got to be responsible adults at some point. Um, And you start to scheme and you're like, I'm going to protect this one thing that I have, which is living in this place that's, has all this value to me. Mm-hmm. But then I'm going to, I have a friend who's a professional artist and he and his wife, I'm like, he's a very successful professional fine artist as far as that goes, you know, he's, and, um, but like they, they realized at some point they were like, we'll never be able to buy a home where we live in Los Angeles, but we have to live in Los Angeles to be whatever near my gallerist mm. or whatever it is. And they're like, well, if I stop renting this storage space that I've been renting for my art, that is my livelihood, I could buy a house in the desert and just store my art there and go there sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. And you're like, what a bizarre scheme, but it (laughs) makes sense only in this sick economy of urban America. Sure. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, having a house instead of a storage space somewhere else. Um, Nick, do you ever consider a return to your rural roots? I got nothing else at this point. I'm locked in. I don't <laughs> I don't know how to be in anything else but a city. I would I would be useless in a small if I can't get Thai food and water in the morning, I can't live there. That's my <laughs> rule of thumb. So it's like really eliminates vast swaths of America from places that I could possibly live. You're not ready to bring your half African American, half Native American children to rural North Carolina no, no, they, and try and explain to them a new culture? No. They like their they like their fish grilled, not fried, and breaded, unfortunately. <laughs> they have lost their way. They like a nice plank salmon. 
They like a halibut. They like a salmon. Mm. They're not. They're not good with that flounder, man. Their little systems can't handle all that that fried it's battered a, stuff. It's a complicated fish. Right? I mean, I think I think what cities do do for people is just kind of ruin you, though. I mean, like when you're around. San, if you're in San Francisco for a significant amount of time, what are you going to do? Move out to Daly City? What are you going to do? You're going to do everything you can to stay in that, you know? And you can't even put your finger on the thing that you love about it, but you just don't want to not be there. The know? thing that reminds me of driving into Los Angeles, when you use that, when you use that metaphor, so when you're driving into Los Angeles, Los Angeles has such extensive exurbs and suburbs that... It's sort of like boiling a frog. You never, you know, you turn on the heat and uh, the frog never realizes it's being boiled because it just gets a little hotter and a little hotter. Like, you're never quite sure exactly when you're yeah. in Los Angeles. Is this it? Is this it? Yeah. And, and I think that, like, over the last 20, 25 years in urban America, the people who live there have had their frogs boiled. You know, where where my mother lives in the Mission District in San Francisco, you know, she's got rent control, but there's cost of living increases or whatever they're called, inflation in- increases, and it just gets a little more expensive and a little more expensive, and this place where she bought her food closed, and then this restaurant where she knows the owner and, you know, he gives her a, he gives her a price break, closes, and all of a sudden you look around and the only thing that's available to eat is cronuts. Mm-hmm. Right. And it the the whole time you're thinking this is worth it because I'm getting the thing, but at the end of it you're just like, wow, am, have I have I trapped myself in this life? I mean, I think like I was driving through Echo Park the other day for the first time. I just hadn't been in that part of the city in a while and I knew that, you know, it was obviously gentrifying, but I just hadn't seen it. And so when you see the Chipotle Starbucks combo right there on one stop shop. It's a one stopper, like right there on Sunset, just across the street from Mohawk Bend or whatever. This is very like specific Los Angeles. (laughs) But Echo Park was a, you know, like a Latino neighborhood that is now fully, you know, been gentrified. But when you see it, it is sort of, it's very stark and it's very striking because you're basically telling the people who built this neighborhood, this is not for you anymore. And you got to get out, and you got to move to you know Highland Park or wherever that those people live. And gentrification is inevitable in a big American city. Like you know, rich white people got to live somewhere. They're just not gonna not live. <laughs> They're not gonna leave. They're just gonna spread and move. And once they find your neighborhood not super scary, that's it. You know, um, and you have to at that point. Then you have to do a different fight. It's like you know everybody's got to do their fight. And if you get you get displaced in your neighborhood it's like how much do you love la because commerce is calling or you know southgate is calling sure you don't have to fight this fight you get a nice two bedroom you two a whole extra bedroom for your for your hour commute like get a whole extra bedroom and it seems like that you know kind of a place where that sort of thing starts is that people who romanticize grime you know Mm -hmm. it's like you do have the kind of like the early the early gentrifiers come in yeah. because it's so real and it's so raw and look at all of this, but it's the, you know, it's eventually the Pilates studio will come. Well, and that's what's so interesting about Bubble is that you have the two female characters who are basically the people who will move to Highland Park before the, <laughs> you know, the Jonathan Gold reviewed, you know, uh, 
uh, Tex Mex, yeah, whatever. Sure. Come, you know, like the, those the two female leads in the show are the two women who want to live in a kind of grimy place because of what they're doing and and their personalities, which is kind of fun. Usually, you know, in a in a show, it would be the opposite. You would have the guy wanting to sort of grime it out, and the the girls wanting to live in that sort of upscale part of the town. And it's interesting to see to see in this show that those are the two you know the two characters want to live like that and also to get a glimpse into different parts of the the city of Fairhaven which we will you know obviously see in later episodes I, I want to play another scene from the first episode of Bubble and Mitch who we heard from earlier gets attacked by one of the monsters that gets inside the bubble on the show and he's bleeding so he goes to the home of the two characters the other two protagonists that you, you just mentioned Nick they're called Annie and Morgan. And Annie basically uses the blood of these monsters to turn into drugs to sell. And uh, Morgan is her roommate, and she's a little more square, but she's also from outside of the bubble. She's She knows what it's like to live in the wasteland that surrounds the city. And Mitch kind of vaguely remembers briefly dating one of them and uh, that they kind of knew about this stuff. So he sort of shows up at their doorstop. Sorry I came by. I just remembered you guys make drugs or whatever from the stuff that comes from the brush. Wow, you tell guys you meet on Tinder that you and your roommate make narcotics from the blood of carnivorous imps? I was desperate for something to talk about. This guy opened with a 30-minute story about how someone he went to high school with used to eat bees. Well, talk about your siblings or prestige streaming television like a normal boring person on a bad date. At least that won't get me thrown in jail. I start all my Tinder conversations with, are you a cop? They can't lie. It's like an amendment or something. You know, I've had a lot of luck with that bee-eating story in the past. It's got lots of universal themes. Jordan, you uh, you chose to have two of the three primary protagonists of this story be women. Um, and in a lot of ways, as much as the story has, you know, as much as there is a romantic element to the, the story here, it is largely about these two women's friendship. Why did you want to make that sh- make the show about friendship, and why about women's friendship? Um, yeah, so I mean, I think as a white guy making things, who does not want to be an evil white guy who makes things, um, you know, who wants to make a thing, but also you know do a net good for society. You know, I kind of had the the general idea that you know when I wanted to write something, um, that you know I should take a minute and think about if it's all just you know, straight white men. Yeah, it's just something that I am thinking about. Like when I'm writing something, you know, just be careful about who is in it and who is represented and are there I mean, all the, kinds of people. And The nature of hegemony is that the people with the cultural power make the rules. And if you're a member of that group, it sometimes requires a certain step, which is stopping and thinking about sure. it. Sure. Because otherwise you may default to your own position, which is the hegemonic position. Yeah. And, you know, and I think there is a version of this story where it is two straight white guys who kill monsters and then argue about Star Wars, um, (laughs) which I could probably write pretty well. Um, But, yeah, but I think when I started thinking about it, I I, all these characters are pretty firmly based on someone I know. So I think instead of trying to write like. A woman or, a, you know, a strong woman or something. I just wrote about my friend and that was kind of my strategy is that I will just base all of these on people I like and I think are funny and interesting. And it turns out that I know all kinds of people because, you know, I'm 
a guy who is in the world. And I think that, you know, in the end, that that was actually a pretty diverse group of people. And it's also kind of in the casting as well. Like, you know, I think when we were talking about who to put in this thing, we also kind of had that vague idea. It's like, okay, well, we are straight white guys. Maybe let's not fill this with straight white guys. And then it's like, well, let's think about the funny people we know. And that just happened to be a cool group of people that involved people of color and LGBT people and, you know, uh, all kinds of people. So I think that it was a thing that we that mm-hmm. at least the thing that I thought about, but was not hard in the end. Like, I think if you just kind of like write about the world around you, it will be a little more diverse because the world is diverse, I guess. There were a lot of writers who worked on the show. Um, a couple of women who wrote whole episodes. Uh, Janine Brito wrote an episode. Sarah Morgan wrote mm-hmm. an episode. And then a kind of team of writers that we brought in for a couple of days of work yeah. um, to help punch things up, which included a whole bunch of women, um, including Alison Becker, who you just heard in that yeah. clip, was one of them. Um, were there things that they said about what you had written that helped you make it better in addition to just great punchlines, like yeah. al- alternate punchlines? Um, yeah, and I think that um, the writing team we brought on, they kind of had the first episode and a part of the second episode that I had written already, and they were kind of like writing their episodes based on the tone established in those first one and a half, two episodes. And uh, uh, Janine Brito was writing the third. She's uh, a writer on uh, One Day at a Time on Netflix and, you know, basically one of the funniest stand-up comics that I know. Yeah, so Um, funny. Yeah, her episode, when her episode came back, there was a lot of emphasis placed on why the two main characters were friends. They are kind of Craigslist roommates. And I think that something that happened when I read her episode is like, oh my gosh, they're people who are, they're mismatched and they're thrown together through circumstance, but they're friends and they really, really love each other. And I think something that I heard from people about those previous episodes is like, it kind of seems like they're enemies. It kind of seems (laughs) like they're roommates who hate each other. And while that's kind of a funny dynamic and makes for like some fun banter and punchlines and stuff, it is infinitely less satisfying to listen to people who are being dicks to each other. So I think based on Janine's episode, I kind of went back with, um, you know, the help of our punch up team. Um, I'll particularly shout out, Alison Becker and uh, a great writer, Jane Borden here, uh, who really helped me like find some ways to make them friends. And even though they are mismatched and even though they are like thrown together through circumstance, like they do love each other. And even though it is hard for them to work together because they're super different, they, you know, they're a unit and kind of for better or for worse. So, yeah, I think the the I think the series is a lot better with that dynamic that was kind of put in after the fact. Nick, you've been a TV writer for quite a long time now. What, 10, 12 years, something like that? Mm, seven, I think. So yeah. I imagine that you have been in rooms writing jokes where you're the only black person. Yes. <laughs> that uh, is usually the norm. Um, how do you feel about the – I mean, I I know because you are my friend, I know you have strongly and specifically developed feelings about representation in television comedy. Um. How did you think about those issues with respect to Bubble? 
No, I mean, I think just being sort of uh, in the Max Fun world and knowing, you know, Jordan, I wasn't really worried about it. I mean, I've just had the opportunity to see the sort of friends and the coworkers that you guys have. So I just, at this point, I've, I've been lucky enough to work with people where I know that it's at least, uh, you know, being considered. Um, you know that if you're in this industry, it's, you're not going to be surrounded by, unless you work on Atlanta, you're not going to be surrounded by black people <laughs> all the time. You're just like sort of used to that. But I, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work on, you know, specifically like the BoJack environment and the sort of being around this environment is, even if it's straight white guys, it's straight white guys who try not to see the world from a totally straight white white guy perspective at all times and that's really the only thing you want you know as a creative person you just don't want to feel like that it is by default always going to go back to you know that same archetype and i knew that we i just you know i I trusted jordan and knew that he wouldn't he wouldn't do that um and the second that i started to hear the the people that were going to be involved i was like uh, yeah those people are all just really funny you know it's funny we did a q a the other night uh at the premiere of bubble and christelle alonzo who's one of the stars of the show um, was talking about how much she loves sci-fi. And that's one of the reasons that I reached out to her to be on the show, you know, after you and I talked about it, Jordan, was I was like, you know, Christelle is always talking about how much she loves Doctor Who and Star Trek. I mean, maybe she would be in it because, yeah. you know, she's 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 pretty, she doesn't need us. No, she absolutely does not, <laughs> no. Uh, and uh, I... I read Pixar residuals coming in. <laughs> exactly. Um, so... Uh, one of the things she said was, you know, she grew up such a huge fan of sci-fi, but I believe the line specifically that she said was, in most sci-fi, you're more likely to see someone with a paper plate glued to their head than you are to see a Latinx person. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's actually fair. I literally can't think of it. I was like, Edward James Olmos has, has been in a few things, yeah, but sure. besides that. Smith is in the prequels. Yeah. yeah well, there you go. Um, but... Uh, I think that like one of the thing, one of the ways that we got lucky in making this show is, uh, especially with Christella and uh, to some extent with Keith Powell from uh, Thirty Rock, who plays Van in the show, was without even necessarily thinking of it. We when we offered them the gig, and that's probably the two people in the cast who had the least been to benefit from being sure. in our show. Yes. <laughs> but like uh when we offered them the gig, they both were like, "Man, like this is so different from what I get offered." Mm. That that was the thing that uh that was the thing that sealed it for them. That was the reason they both said the other night that they agreed before they spread the script. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was just that they that they otherwise don't get this kind of opportunity, you know. Cristela plays the boss. You know, the boss of a big corporation and Keith plays uh, a chill stoner dude. Mm-hmm. It's also like, I mean, I was just talking to Jordan a little bit about this on the way over. You don't you don't get that many opportunities to really stretch your wings as an actor. You know, if you're if you're the star of a show, you obviously have a lot of scenes. You have a lot of dialogue if you're on a good ensemble thing. Other than that, you're a working actor and you're really like. You're in a half. If if you're looking at a script, you're in a third of it, and you have a big scene, and that's it, and you're done. And so I think a lot of people, there is this element of entertainment industry, show business, even with all the money and the TV and the fame, there is a like, hey, everybody, let's put on a show element to it. And people are here, and they, 
I come from a stand-up background and you guys sketch and there is a like, hey, we don't know how many people are going to be here. This isn't going to make us famous. This performance isn't going to make us rich, but this is a thing and we think it's funny and it could be fun and we could have, you know. So I think seeing people respond to the material from that true sort of, hey, everybody, let's put on a show and just do it for shits and giggles was really great. And I, you know, I felt like we would, you guys would be able to get good people. I had no idea Christella would sign on. I had no idea, you know, Keith would sign on, but I was hoping that someone would respond to that element of, I don't get to do this, you know, very often. And there's not that many opportunities for someone to just really stretch their wings for that many episodes. Jordan, what are the sci-fi worlds that you love the most? Because this is such a world-building show. Yeah, well, you know, I could maybe maybe it's more fruitful to start by talking about the ones that I do not like. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, I do not like it in sci-fi where people are always talking about the premise. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, for instance, uh-huh. if there was a movie made a couple years ago that, I don't know, starred Justin Timberlake and was about a world where time was used as currency. Let's just say. Let's just say. this is this, And everyone... In all of their interactions, we're talking about his music video, "Man of the Woods." <laughs> <laughs> yes, and if you know, when everyone, you know, in every interaction, people are always talking about how time is used as currency. That 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 makes me want to uh, barf and leave. Because in a world where people use time as currency, the last thing they would ever do is talk about sit that around they talking use... about yeah, or you know, like if like if we were having this conversation, well, I'm like, well, as you know, we all uh, used use paper that is backed by gold and yes that's the foundation of our economy <laughs> in this world and uh and yeah that just doesn't it it, it never rings true to me it always we would use like... an allegory like in the wizard of oz <laughs> right but it's it is that that it's a it's such a big problem in sci-fi because you have all this big world to set up and you're like i don't trust that people are going to understand it and believe it right i have to keep yelling at them and telling them what the world is as opposed to just letting it happen and evolve yeah, so I mean, I think I, I I like stuff where it is a fantastical world, but it seems like people are just living their lives. Um, and yeah, and I think when we talk about the show, we've been mentioning Buffy the Vampire Slayer a lot as kind of a favorite show that kind of like nailed this tone. And yeah, something that I love about that show is that like the dangers in it are really crazy. They are totally crazy and out of the nuttiest Steve Ditko comic book that you could ever buy, but the characters date and they go to school and they do new jobs and like they're not always talking about the hell mouth that is opening up underneath them although you know a fair amount because it's a hell mouth you know gonna, yeah, it's, you can't you can't you let it go completely it. unsaid yeah um so yeah i mean i think that's something that i liked about it is that like these characters weren't just there to explain the world to you they were there to be real characters and to live people's lives uh, but they also get into a lot of cool fights, and it's pretty sweet when they do karate. <laughs> <laughs> There's a particular tone that I think you were shooting for, Jordan, and it's not the tone that necessarily people know from the radio drama that they've heard. Can you describe to me what it was that you didn't want the audio version of Bubble to be like? Yeah, I mean, I think when people hear about this project, maybe something that they assume that we're trying to do is, like, make fun of old-time radio. Let's uh, go up the stairs. Clip, clop, clip, clop. <laughs> you know, like, 
and I think people have the idea that, you know, when they vaguely hear about this, maybe they think we're like banging around bags of hammers <laughs> to signify a fight or something like that. And I think a lot of sci-fi comedy can have that quality, too, uh, of uh, that there is like an element of camp. Right. Uh, that is part of the joke. Yeah. And, you know, I do think we have some fun with the fact that it is audio, but I don't think that's what anyone wanted the joke to be. And I think that sometimes when you get self-referential in something, then that's the only kind of joke people want to hear. Like as soon as a TV show or a movie gets self-aware, as soon as the character looks down the barrel of the camera and, you know, says something about the outside world that only you know, that's the only kind of joke you want to hear. And anything that involves character or physical comedy kind of gets sidelined because people want to hear those self-referential jokes that they think they're the only person who's in on. And I think that's just something I want. Jordan, this whole thing is turning into Jordan's critique of Wayne's World 2. <laughs> Listen, I think Wayne's World 2 is very funny, and I think that kind of thing can be great. I have absolutely loved stuff like that in the past, but I just kind of wanted this to be a different thing where the the joke was things the characters were saying and relationships and stuff like that. And I do think we have some you know fun with sci-fi sure. gunk, but um, yeah, I think I think just we're being very delicate not to get to well I'm opening the door to this wonderful room that I wish everyone could see boy I sure am seeing this room which is real I mean like that is funny like I was almost making myself laugh doing it because it was funny but I think it would have stolen the show in a weird way and become and would have become the cornerstone of it uh, whereas I kind of like Wanted to make it more about the characters and the adventure and the, you know, and the weird little journey that they're on. Well, I mean, it's a parallel to, like, the whole podcasting experience in Macro. Like, if you're doing, if you're starting a podcast, you can't be like, I'm just a guy doing a goofy little show in my basement. Because then people are going to think you're just a guy doing a goofy show in your basement as opposed to a professional radio host, which is what you're trying to present yourself as. And I think you want to make sure the thing is fun without being a goof. And I feel like every time you wink and nod to the camera, every time you go, look at this painting. Isn't that beautiful? Mm-hmm. Like, ha, the joke is that they can't see the painting. Right. You know, every time you do that, it does sort of cheapen the thing as opposed to saying it's a sitcom. You can't see anything. Go. Like, yeah. that's how Jordan talked about it and how we tried to treat it. It's just just a sitcom. There are certain things you can't write because they're they're so visual but other than that, we treated it, you know, just like you would treat a, a regular show. The thing that uh, I was thinking about was, you know, the fundamental quality of audio is intimacy that, you know, as we talk right now, we're talking directly into the ears of people who, you know, ordinarily it Don't might make be it a, weird. a telephone call, <laughs> a telephone call from their mom or whatever, right? Right? Like, right, right, right. It's the same way that they receive that, like, most personal information. It's the reason This American Life works so well as a radio show is somebody can tell their own story to you and it feels like they are talking to you. You got this sweet, sweet man whispering to your ear. Yeah. And it seemed like the one note that went to the actors on, you know, the first 10 minutes that everybody got there was you're just talking to your friends. Like, you're talking to your friends. That's what is happening in this show. Talk like a person who's talking to their friends, not like a person who's whatever putting on a show so yeah i mean i think if you hear the premise of the show it sounds like a comedy sketch right um yeah i mean it it would be a fine premise for a comedy sketch and i think that you know because we have 
actors with such a range of experience. A lot of really funny sketch comedians are in this. I think that there could have been uh, an impulse to do a big, crazy sci-fi sketch character. Um, But yeah, I think that was just kind of not something we wanted. And yeah, and I think, you know, kind of speaking to the, you know, the want of this to be a version of the real world that just happens to be batshit crazy. Um, yeah, I think that's that's just kind of how the performances were directed. You know, don't just be a, you know, don't be a parody of a sci-fi character. Just be a person. I think also in so many genres like sci-fi and action, the writing is people writing just words that they've heard in other sci-fi movies. Sure. It's not real. People don't talk like that. People don't act like that. You just you're just a guy who's seen a lot of sci-fi movies and you're just writing what you've seen in in other sci-fi movies and it it sort of ends up being what a lot of what Jordan was talking about earlier just exposition-y stuff or, you know, release the world engine, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan, I I've known you for a really long time and I've always known you to hate everything that you've ever made. Mhm. Um, this is the first big project like this that you have been the boss of. Um, you know, you've you've been the temporary head writer on At Midnight sometimes, mm-hmm. but this is your first thing that is your thing that is of this scale. Um, were you scared about that? Are you scared about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the reason that I don't hate Bubble. And I don't. I genuinely don't hate it after having worked on it for a long time and let it make me kind of crazy. I've really just been like I've spent the last like three months trying to figure out to what extent you were hiding how much you hated Bubble. No, yeah, I I do genuinely really like it and I'm super proud of it and could not be more excited that it's out there. And I think just part of the reason why it's stayed near and dear is just because I've gotten to involve so many of my favorite people from – you know, Nick helping me outline the season to, you know, Sarah Morgan and Janine Brito and Dan Kennedy and Ryan Perez, like writing awesome episodes. And those punch up rooms were so great. And, you know, then there was a whole other level of collaboration, just bringing in like the funniest people we know to make the lines even funnier. Um, Yeah. And I think that's I mean, I, I, I am not a go to a cabin and write a novel creative person. I'm a, you know, let's sit around a table and order lunch and try and make each other laugh creative person. Um, and yeah, I definitely envy the, I'm going to go to a cabin and write a novel types. Cause that seems like a cool way to live sometimes. Um, but yeah, I think I am, you know, I'm a, I like group work. I like, you know, I like having a big gang of funny people who you trust. And yeah. And I think that like bubble was a cool idea. And then a bunch of the most talented people, came in to make a great thing from it and yeah i will i i only think i deserve a really tiny bit of credit for coming up with the kind of cool idea but then everybody else really like yeah made it you know yeah really really made it special and i think that like if this was just my thing you know i could sit around and you know pick at it all day and toss and turn and wake up at four in the morning and you know delete it all and throw my laptop out the window but like I'm like, oh, man, there's that joke Nick came up with. That is so funny. Like, oh, and, you know, I can't believe that, like, Sarah Morgan came up with this awesome robot cab driver scene off the top of her head. Spoiler alert, there's a robot cab driver scene that Sarah Morgan came up with that is very funny. So, yeah, I don't really feel like I'm looking at my thing. I look at something I made with my friends, and it's really great. 
There's something that I felt in making it, and I don't know if this is something that you relate to, but, you know, we asked all these people to be involved in it, whether it's Chris Stella or Keith or Judy Greer or Janine Brito or all these people that I admire, frankly. Sure. Like people, you know, one of the reasons that you live, that you pay the money to live in the big city is to live near these, get that you might get to interact with these right, people sure. whose creativity you admire. I think, you know, like Rob Corddry. Like we've known Rob Corddry for a long time, mm-hmm. but he's Rob Corddry. You know, like what a brilliant genius of a comic actor Rob Corddry is, you know? And to, I found something just Im- immense, like almost, I would almost use the word moving about the fact that when I sent this guy, I admire an email and said, hey, will you come do this thing with us? It pays a hundred dollars, <laughs> and he emailed back, "Yes, yes." By the way, I don't need to. I know Dwayne the Rock Johnson. <laughs> yeah, I interact with him regularly. Yes. <laughs> don't you dare give me that one hundred dollars. Yeah, <laughs> but like Judy Greer's just hanging out in Las Feliz, looking at her uh, pile of gold coins she got for Jurassic World or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I presume that's how Spielberg yeah. pays doubloons. They're straight mm-hmm. doubloons over there, <laughs> and there's. Something that, um, you know, even with the Nick's a little more successful than you or I, but mm-hmm. like <laughs> even with the lower middle level of success that we've had, just to see somebody like that and have them say like, yeah, I I think that something with you is worth doing. I was like, wow, how beautiful is that? What an amazing affirmation that maybe I haven't wasted the last 20 years of my life. <laughs> sure, totally. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's it's such a great group of people. And like, yeah, and that's that's the reason it's a cool thing is that, you know, I think there's a, you know, there's a version of this where I took a year and did all the wrote, voices wrote it all. And yeah, and we would just come in here and do weird voices. And then, uh, so, you know, it would have come out and it would have been very bad. But, you know. But, but yeah, but I think we, you know, kind of went the extra mile and, you know, decided to try and involve cool people and it paid off. Um, does Max Fun have any empty studio time for Jordan and I to come in and record an alternate version of Bubble? That's which just is the two us, of us. Two and all yeah. the voices. Hello, it's me, a girl. <laughs> Look at me, I'm delivering food now. Yeah. Well, Nick and Jordan, thanks for joining me on this special bonus Bubble edition yeah. of Bullseye. Um, you guys are the best. Thanks, man. Mass shucks. Jordan Morris and Nick Adams, the creator and executive producers of Bubble. It's our most ambitious podcast we have ever made in the 12 or 13, 14, 14, gee whiz, 14 years that I've been podcasting. Um, it's hilariously funny. It has a lot of feelings in it. Um, it has a star-studded cast. Really, if you have not already listened to it, you're failing. You're only failing yourself. Uh, Allison Becker from Parks and Rec, Keith Powell from Thirty Rock, Eliza Skinner from The Late Late Show and Drop the Mic, Cristela Alonso, who you just heard on Bullseye recently, Mike Mitchell from Love. Fresh episodes for season one every Wednesday. There will be eight episodes, and if you haven't already subscribed, please. You are listening to a podcast right now. Get your phone out. Open that podcatcher, search for Bubble, click subscribe. You'll be glad you did. Okay, talk to you next time on Bullseye.